They told me, as I sat in the board, that I was a detriment to the decent people of society and that they had no alternative but to give me five years. I said, you got anything to say for yourself? Huh? The big shot, big time speaker from Cleveland, Ohio. <clears throat> I'm in AA now. You know what they said? There's a little button on the side. Two gorillas walk in. They press that button and say, get him out of here. Get him out of here. And I went back to my rack and I lay down on my rack. And I'd reached a point where I could do nothing more than what I'd already done. And I followed directions you'd been hammering into my mind for the past 11 months. I said a prayer. My first prayer in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the prayer was the one that's so simple, it's so common, it's almost blasé to do it anymore. Let's say the prayer instead of pray the prayer. Here it is. God grant me the serenity. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hola, compadres. And once again, I want to give a shout out to the listener named Alan in California for providing me that phrase. I so love it. Nonetheless, that was the voice of Milt L. That you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 313 from Studio AA deep in the heart of Texas. And you are going to hear so much more from Milt in un momento. But first things first on episode number 313 this episode is brought to you by sponsored by if you will uh jimmy and andy and michelle and todd and idaliza and lou what you may ask did the aforementioned folks do well they went to our humble little website www.soberspeak.com they clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution so thank you so much jimmy and andy and michelle and todd and idaliza and lou this here episode is coming coming right out to you and we're gonna let all the other folks listen on in but we are especially glad that you have helped us. And you know, I've said this before, but I just thought of it. Uh, um, and that is, contribute 
if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. I, I back when I first started this thing, I thought, how am I ever going to get some funds to make all this happen year after year after year? But I have discovered over the years that uh, I get what I need when I need it. Uh, and don't feel you ever have to contribute. It's always appreciated, but never, ever expected. So thank you all. So are you enjoying the fall, wherever you are, the fall season? Well, I guess if you're on, gosh, I'm assuming out in like Australia, New Zealand, and all you folks listening out in that area of the world, maybe on the lower end of the world, not lower like, lower in class, but you know what I mean? Uh, below the, what do they call that? Oh, the equator, I think is what it's called. I hope that I'm assuming, well, in fact, I see the numbers. The majority of the people that listen to us are on the north end of the equator. So for those of you who are experiencing fall, uh, I hope you are enjoying it. It is by far my favorite season. Uh, there's just something about it. There's there's football. Uh, there's the leaves underneath my feet. There's the pumpkins. There's Thanksgiving. There's I don't know. I just I, I like the chill that comes in the air, which by the way is very slow to come in Texas, but it does get here. Um, and uh, anyway, I hope you're enjoying the fall. Um, I, there's a couple things that I've been experiencing here lately. Uh, and my daughter. We just sent her off to school. When I say sent her off, sent her off to college. And um, she went off, um, so she's not with us in the house anymore. I don't get to see her at dinner. I don't get to see her at least a couple, three times a day. And uh, I'm going through some feelings about that. My son is actually in his senior year of high school, and we're going through all the final stuff together, uh, at least, you know, with him being here at home. I, I'm assuming he's going to go off next year. I don't know exactly what is going to happen in his life, but uh, it's uh, bringing up a lot of feelings for me. Um, and my wife and the lovely Mrs. M is going through the same things. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I don't talk about this a lot on the podcast, but right at this particular time, I'm struggling with my job, um, and and it seems like I have many struggles with my job. It's like I'm always trying to figure out what am I going to do when I grow up, where am I going to fit in, uh, what's my next calling, how can I help the most people, and then support my family at the same time. And so I've been going through some uh, struggles in that arena. But uh, and, and, you know, and the interesting part of that is because of that, I've been... So I recorded a guy a, few, a couple of three weeks ago. You, you'll be hearing him. His name is Brad L. And it, it's coming out in a, a few weeks, I think. And Brad... Um, it really turned me on to being in the now uh, and focusing on being in the now. And and I got to tell you, I I tried to do that right before I got on this podcast, tried to be in the now before I go and actually record it. And I pray that I may help 
the maximum, I just, I pray that we may help somebody somewhere, somehow. And I've got my eyes right now closed as I'm saying this, and I'm trying to be in the now, but I got to tell you, man, I get the idea, uh, but it is, it's hard. Uh, It's really hard. But when you taste it for just a few moments, it's like, Man, you want to go back there and be there in that moment and just experience the now. There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. And, and I've been trying to experience that and, and, and live in that moment. Uh, but, but it's hard. You know, life comes at you and there are things that have to get done. Uh, but I have been practicing, you know, there is a line in, and I'm not a Bible expert by any means, but uh, there's a line in the Bible and it says, pray without ceasing. Uh, and there's also, there's a lot of references in the big book. One of them that I can think of off the top of my head is about, about our constant thought of others must be with us. And, and through practicing this in the now, it has given me another... another um, uh, uh, it, it has helped me with my conception of God, and it has helped me in, uh, uh, it's given me a new way of looking at conscious contact with God. I'll put it that way. Um, I, I, I didn't mean to go into all that, <laughs> but, but you got it. Uh, uh, thanks for listening to some of my gibberish. That's just a little bit. And, and when I do these things, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that in my little pea brain, I just, I, I think about, does sharing this help other people? I, I'm assuming they're going through the same things because when I hear other people share about it, it helps me. Uh, sometimes I talk about more about what's going on with my life here on this podcast than I actually do in meetings or sometimes with the lovely Mrs. M. And then I think uh, I, this just seems like the right thing to do and I can't put my finger on it. All right, so let me shift gears here a little bit, then we'll get into Milt L. So here is a, hear that? That is an actual physical letter that was written to me. They found me, and uh, I am going to read this letter right now and then ask for some assistance. Um, It says, John, my name is Richard. I am currently incarcerated in TDCJ, which is the Texas Department of Corrections and Justice, I believe. And he says, I have have a six-year sentence for DWIs. In prison, we get tablets, and one of the apps we get is a podcast app, and I found yours. I am an alcoholic, and I have been in and out of the meeting since 2013, but unfortunately, I relapsed and ended up here. I'm writing to thank you for your podcast. Every morning, I get up and read my big book, and I listen to an episode, and I'm trying to stay connected as best as I can. I live in Austin, and there is some good recovery there. The first time I got sober was three, the first time I got sober was for three years, and I got all three chips from Charlie and Katie P. at the Primary Purpose Group. I was in county jail when I found out Charlie had passed, and I was pretty sad. For the first time, I was in treatment. 
Oh, oh, the first time I was in treatment, Charlie was the first volunteer to come speak to us. The unit I'm in, they don't have any AA meetings. They said they don't have any volunteers to bring one. So I was going to ask you if you knew anyone in the North Houston area that would possibly want to bring us a meeting. So here's my, so what, and and he says also, I also wanted to see if you know anyone who could possibly want to work with me while I am here. I had a sponsor in Austin. He said he would stay in touch, but it's been five months and no response. I'm up for parole in November, and hopefully they grant me some sort of parole. Parole. If so, I would like to come check out y'all's meeting there in Frisco. Come on down, Richard, or come on up, I should say, one day. He says, being able to hear Charlie and Katie Parker's podcast was really awesome. Uh, it took me home for a minute. Being able to hear Charlie and Katie's podcast was really awesome. It took me home for a minute. Once again, thank you. I will be listening every day. If you have any AA literature you could send me, big book, etc., that would be amazing. So here's my ask, is that if you are listening to this and you happen to be in the Houston area, North Houston to be... um to be uh, to be exact, uh, go ahead and write me, John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and maybe, and, I, and I'll give you the, the unit number and where he's talking about. It's in Humble, Texas, uh, for Richard. And then I also want to give a big shout out to my friend Mike, uh, who helps us with uh, the prison outreach. He is the one who receives the uh, letters uh, in his physical, at the physical P.O. box in Tempe, and he volunteered to go ahead and reach out and to correspond with Richard. Richard, if you haven't heard from him already, you should be hearing from him soon. But thank you, my friend, for writing in. All right, now on to Mr. Milt L. We're calling this one, God Grant Me the Serenity. Now, this is a live recording of Milt. Uh, He lives, or I'm assuming he still lives in Cleveland, Ohio. I used to listen to this, to Milt's cassette tapes when I was traveling throughout the U.S. and Canada. It got me through a a multitude of long drives. Multitude, is that the right word? Does that fit when you're talking about how many drives you've taken? Or is that just when like Jesus is feeding the multitudes or something like that? I don't know if it's right or not, but hey, it made me feel a lot smarter. Anyway, one time when I was traveling, I was in Cleveland for work. And I talked to, uh, there was a guy I recorded one time, excuse me, uh, his name was Tim, and he's up there in the Cleveland area. I went to the Newberg group, which was Clint, I'm assuming that's still his home group, I'm not sure, but I went by the Newberg group hoping to meet, meet Milt, say that 10 times quick, but he wasn't there that, that night. However, the meeting was... <laughs> Oh my goodness, lights out. I mean, almost 
in a literal way, like physically, I thought there was going to be a fisticuffs. Now, those folks were passionate about their beliefs. I don't remember exactly what they were yelling about, but it, <laughs> I mean, it was intense. <laughs> so anyway, if you're up there and, and you go to the Newberg group, I absolutely loved it, but it was an interesting meeting. That's for sure. I'd never experienced anything like that. Anyway, when I was there at the meeting, they told me about a meeting that Milt was having at his house that week. So I was able to pop by, go to that meeting, uh, meet him at his house, partake in the meeting, meet his family, his dogs, the whole nine yards. So anybody, if you are out there listening and you know how to get a hold of Milt, uh, please let me know. I'm at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Uh, I would love to interview him if he's up for it. Um, for those of you about to listen to this, you will notice that Milt has an unusual delivery style. <laughs> and I love it. I mean, I listened to this tape till it didn't play anymore. But nonetheless, so buckle up, everybody. Enjoy Milt. And I will have plenty additional listener feedback at the end oh this no 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 at the end oh this episode so i will have plenty oh listener feedback at the end of this episode here enjoy milt loring and i'm an alcoholic <clears throat> i'm a member of the newberg group in cleveland ohio uh thank you for allowing me to be here today i want to uh thank the people that asked me and and any burden i might have been on dave and his family i apologize for and deeply grateful for the effort they've put in to uh allowing me to stay in their home i uh um if there's one thing i can tell you about alcoholism that's possibly the most important thing i can tell you about alcoholism in my life is this and it's this really is important it is that if i could stop drinking on my own i'd have never come to aa that's the bottom line most important thing in my life today, that if I just could have stopped drinking, I wasn't looking for happiness or peace or joy. If I could have just stopped drinking on my own, I'd have never, never come to alcohol. As a matter of fact, at that time in my life, if I could have stopped drinking on my own, I wouldn't have spit on a best AA in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's a fact. And that's a fact. I, I, uh, I really didn't have a problem with my drinking. <laughs> Other people had a problem with my drinking. My, <laughs> my ma had a problem with my drinking. My neighbors had a problem with my drinking. And the cops had a big problem with my drinking. <laughs> and as long as it was their problem, I didn't have to do nothing about it. <laughs> and it wasn't until drinking became my problem I decided to quit. And I believe that's where the story starts for me. I made a decision to stop drinking in January the 15th of 1970. The fact that I made that decision in the city jail had nothing to do with the decision. <laughs> and the fact that I know it was January the 15th because it was public record. I think it's fair to mention that I was in there on January the 14th. <laughs> and I didn't make that decision. <laughs> and I think it's also fair to let you know I remember being there January the 11th. 
I don't remember being there January the 10th, but a public record says that I was. I made a decision to stop drinking, not because of jail. If there's anything that all I can tell you about jail is that I jailed well. I had no trouble with jail. None at all. I had no trouble with hospitals. I had no trouble with shootings or stabbings or be- None of that fazed me. The reason I made a decision to stop drinking was because I had lost control of my life. I could no longer control my life. I like to drink. (laughs) Some of the biggest accomplishments I had in my life was binges. I like to get on long drunks. Nine months was my record, and I wore that like a red badge of courage everywhere I went. I did nine months once. And now I'm on one of them benders. It started somewhere in the end of November, beginning of December, and, and I made a, a, a kind of an idea that I didn't want to get involved in this. I had the holidays coming up and all of that stuff, and I just said I ain't going to drink no more, and I didn't stop. I, I, I was a couple of weeks into this drunk and I found myself unable to get home before 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Somewhere about another couple of days or a week after that, I found myself at the bar room at 6.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Even, it ain't even open and I'm standing out and it's cold, man. It's cold and I need a drink. About a week after that, I find myself in a position where I can't sleep. If I get home at 2.30 or 3 o'clock, I'm up at 4 and I'm pacing the floor. And I've been drinking for 18 or 20 hours. i got a problem, and I don't know exactly what the problem is. I don't know how to solve the problem. In a very short time, I'm not eating at all. Maybe a bag of chips and a Smokey, and I put some ketchup on top of that, and it's a breakfast of champions, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> I find myself sweating a lot, sweating a lot and stinking a lot. Now, I've smelled a lot of dead bodies, but there ain't nothing stinks like a drunk coming off a drunk. Nothing smells like that. And I could smell myself. That's the worst part of it all. I could smell myself. I'm unable to sleep. I'm unable to eat. And I'm unable to change my clothes. I would come home at 2.30 or 3 o'clock and I would just lay down on a bed with full intentions of changing my clothes later on and I would wake up and sweat and walk and I would be confused, confused. And I'd lay back down and sleep the rest of the night and it'd be 20 minutes or a half an hour later and I had a problem and I don't know what to do. I'd wake up finally at 5 or 5.30 and I'd walk out the door ready rolled, unable to change my clothes. Unable to take a bath. I'd stand at the bar at 6 o'clock in the morning or 5.30 in the morning and I would be coming apart. I'd throw a couple of shooters in and I'd feel a little bit better and I'd say to myself, this has got to stop. And it's going to stop right now. And I'd take the glass and I'd turn it over and I'd walk out the door. And before I could get my hands on the handle of the car, I'd have to walk back in. I got a problem. I got a serious problem, and the problem is drinking. And I knew this. I knew that I couldn't help what was happening to me, but if I got off of this drunk, when I got off of this drunk, this was never going to happen again. 
but I couldn't get off to drunk. In a very short time, I already told you I'm unable to eat, I'm unable to sleep, I'm unable to change my clothes, and I'm unable to take a bath. Now, I don't mean to tell you there's no tub or no water or no clothes. I mean to tell you that alcohol is running my life and I can no longer do what I want to do. I've lost control of my life. My brain got like a sponge. I, I, I couldn't think things out. I couldn't think things through. I was always confused, and, and, I, and I didn't know what to do next. I would stand and look at the, at the bathroom and know I would have to go to the bathroom, and my brain would go in another direction. I'd look down, and I had wet my pants, and I didn't want to live like this. And I knew one thing for sure. When I got off of this drunk, I was never going to drink again. I knew that for sure. I told you I was picked up on Intox on the 10th and another one on the 11th and another one on the 14th. And, and finally on the 15th, there was a felony and they no longer kept me in a drunk tank. They put me in a, in, a, in a whole row of empty cells where nobody could get to me because I had done something that made them mad. <laughs> made them mad. <laughs> and they were going to visit me. <laughs> They locked me in this whole row of empty cells for three days on a suspicion charge and they wouldn't book me. And for three days coming off of that drunk, I shook and I threw up and I was sick. And they didn't bring me no coffee and, and, and donut in the morning and no coffee and bologna sandwich at lunch and no coffee and, and one of them ham with the, the salami with the things inside of it, seeds things. They left me for three days. I had a steel cut and a toilet. And I don't know about you, but when I come off drunks, I get thirsty. And I had a drink from the same place I went to the bathroom. And I don't want to live like this no more. I sobered up long enough in that cell to make that decision that this ain't going to happen no more. I ain't going to drink no more. And I formulated a game plan. And the game plan is this, and it's a very simple game plan. If I'm going to stay sober, I'm going to have to make some changes. I'm telling you that on January the 15th of 1970, I had a sincere, honest desire to stay sober. I had a willingness to make changes I didn't want to make to do things I didn't want to do because I didn't want the pain no more. And I realized that if I'm going to stay sober, one of the changes I better make is get a job. <laughs> I wasn't real good at hard work. <laughs> it didn't impress me. <laughs> and I only think it's fair to tell you that it wasn't always that way. When I was 16 years old, I looked at the condition of my life and where I was living, and I made up my mind it was going to be different. I made up my mind I was going to get out of this ghetto I lived in, and I was going to do things my family had never been able to accomplish before. I was going to work hard, and I knew that's the only way to do it, was to work hard. And I went out and I got two jobs and I saved my money and I made a down payment on a brand new pickup truck at 16 years old. I was the envy of my neighborhood. At 24, I couldn't keep a job. 
I had drank up my ambitions. I had drank up my desires. I had drank up my dreams. I drank up the ability to live my life the way I wanted to live my life. And that's expensive drinking. <laughs> expensive drinking. I'm 24 years old and, and, and I'm rekindled. I'm 24 years old and I feel maybe now. I can do it now. I got a little hope inside me now. Let's do it. I felt another thing I had to do was to get some responsibility. <laughs> All of the guys that I seen that I hung around with that were heavy hitters would get married. They would get houses and cars and jobs and schools and families and they would stop doing the things that I was still doing and I felt that's what I needed. <laughs> that's a joke, you know. <laughs> I couldn't take care of a gerbil. How would I take care of a family? I got out of that cell. They finally uh, uh, charged me. I got out of that cell on bond. And I went out and I did the things I said I was going to do. I went out and I got the job and went to work every day. And, 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 and that's two different things. Uh, uh, getting a job and going to work every day. Uh, 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 it's two different things. Well, I got some responsibility. I got, you know, when you sober up, see, sober wasn't sweet <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 uh, sober, uh, sober, I had to look at things uh, a little honestly. You see, drunk, I look like colored glasses. I just, everything looked different. You, you, I didn't have to face any truth drunk. You give me a drink and, and it's, and all the world goes away. I don't have to see no reality. And, and most of my problems, if I got any, are your fault. <laughs> Sober, I gotta look at the conditions of my life, you know. I, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, 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 a savings account. I didn't have a checking account. I didn't have a credit card. I, I, I didn't have a driver's license. I, I didn't have a library card. I, I, I lived in a, I lived in a, in a, in a, in a, in a place. I had, uh, I had six or eight or ten bedrooms, a couple of kitchens and a couple of baths. I had a three car garage with a carriage house over the top and I paid 45 bucks a month for the whole shooting match. And when it rained outside, it rained inside. And, 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 I, and I had creatures. <laughs> creatures. Uh, cockroaches and rodents. And, uh, and drunk, I didn't see any of this. <laughs> drunk. Sober. Sober, I had to see this stuff. Now, I knew that I was going to have to make a couple of changes, and one of them was recreation. I, I didn't have none. <laughs> I, I didn't do nothing. I just drank. I didn't play tennis or golf or, or I didn't do anything. I was just a drunk and, a, and I had a, I had a Pollock neighbor and, a, and, and, and that's a, a joke too because all my neighbors are Pollocks. <laughs> uh, 
I had a Pollock neighbor, and, uh, and, and that guy used to go bowling three or four times a week. And, uh, and the cops was never at his door. And, uh, and, uh, and they were mine. <laughs> and, and, and I never seen his couch go through the living room window. And, <laughs> and mine did. <laughs> and I never seen his refrigerator go through the kitchen window. And, and mine did. Uh, 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 so I went bowling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hated bowling. I hated bowling. I, 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 I ain't fond of bowling to this day. <laughs> but I was ready to do anything I had to do in order to stay sober. That's the deal. That's the deal. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the proof positive to me that I wanted to stay sober so bad I would do things I didn't like to do. I had no idea of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had one force and one power, and that's my will. The life-saving, life-giving will that had pulled me out of many, many life-threatening situations. It's the same will that got me into those life-threatening situations, but nonetheless. And nonetheless. So sober, I had a look at the conditions of my life, and I'll tell you what I did after I looked around. I got busy. I started doing what anybody would do. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to improve on it. But I had a problem. <laughs> I was a three-inning ball player. I started lots of stuff. I didn't finish nothing. I didn't finish nothing. I would just start stuff. I got a hammer and I started ripping the walls down where all this mushy plaster was. And, uh, and behind those walls is wires. And I don't like wires. <laughs> so I go to another wall and I start ripping that wall down. That one alone. And behind that wall was wires. I don't like wires. And that's the condition of it is. It was just like that. I would I would start a lot of stuff with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of a lot of action, and I could never follow through. I had no follow through with nothing. No follow through. I I, I tried to do things the way uh, they were supposed to be done, but I got lost. I got lost in the confusion. I got lost in the inability to run my life normally. I was used to living like a drunk. I was just used to living like that. I stayed, th I stayed sober a month on this power. I stayed sober a month and I was like a tiger in the cage. I was, I was uh, uh, restless, irritable, and, and not happy. And not happy. Uh, pacing back and forth and, and, and just screaming in my mind and, and, and confused and trying to figure things out. I, 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 it's, it, it's inevitable that I drank. I had to drink because I'm an alcoholic. I'm a chronic alcoholic. And I'm in a chronic and progressed stages of alcoholism. And I have no defense against the first drink. I have no defense. And when the time came for me to drink, I just did. It's not that I lost my desire to stay sober. It's not that I thought I could handle it again. I had no options. I had no power. I had nothing to pull me through those moments when the drink is there and I take it. I was self-sufficient and independent and my power wasn't good enough. It just wasn't good enough. And I'm an alcoholic today. I'm a chronic and progressed alcoholic today.
then how can I be sober? I'm not self-sufficient. I don't depend on my power. I'm dumb, but I ain't stupid. It was a Sunday evening and I had a successful day. I was uh, uh, pouring drinks for everybody that was at a party uh, 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 that uh, all of her family came to and none of mine. (laughs) I used them up. I burned them out. I took them to the cleaners. And I don't mean just money. I was expensive to love. I was expensive. I can't tell you how many times, you know, my mom raised five kids. I can't tell you how many times she worked hard, how many times the paddy wagon would pull up in front of our house and load maybe my brothers or, or me or all of us in. And my mom would have to walk through the neighborhood with shame and her head hung down and she never drank. It was that she loved me. She loved me. And she worked hard. And I robbed her of that. I robbed her of that. My ma had a, had a rare form of honesty, I think. I, 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 I can remember at, uh, at, uh, at 14 or 15 years old, I would, I would, uh, I'd bring my friends over and, uh, and my ma would say to me, don't hang around with them guys, Melody. They're gonna get you in trouble. And by the time I was 17, she was telling them guys, don't hang around with my Melody. He's gonna get you in trouble. <laughs> it doesn't mean she didn't love me, <laughs> but she knew, <laughs> she knew. I was sober 30 days and I drank again, and I tell you honestly, there was nobody more surprised that I drank again than me. I could not believe that that happened to me. I had made a decision. I had done everything I could to stay sober, and how could this happen? And I was sick. <laughs> I, I was sick, puke sick, I was shake sick, sweat sick, and my drunks now are three and four hours long. I, 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 had, a, I had alcoholic poisoning, I, my body rejected it, totally rejected would not, would not accept alcohol in any form, and I was ill. <laughs> to, and, I would, and it took me days to recover from three or four hours of drinking, days sitting on a couch sweating, shaking, when that got on the floor, sweating, and in the bathroom, sweating. Now, dry heave for days. Uh, uh, no fun. No fun. So I made a decision. <laughs> not only ain't I going to drink no more, but I'm not going to hang around with them guys. And that's a good decision. My mom told me a long time ago, don't hang around with them guys. I told you. And that's a good idea except for one problem. Real one problem. And that is I didn't have nobody else. I had eliminated 99% of the people I'd ever met in my life. I was vulgar and foul-mouthed and abusive and abrasive and I was violent and a cheap chisel and mooch and I didn't make a lot of friends. <laughs> and a small handful that I had that, I, that I'm going to let them go now because I don't want to drink no more. I felt it was there if I didn't hang around with them. And what I'm trying to tell you is this. I didn't want to drink so bad I'd give up the only friends I had. I just didn't want to drink no more. And I started pushing everything and everybody. No weddings. No birthdays. No parties. No get-togethers. 
I don't want to drink no more. And if I go out there and have a good time, I'm going to drink. I know what's going to happen. I already know. And I pushed the whole world away and I built this great big wall so you couldn't get to me. And little did I realize I built a wall that couldn't get out. I didn't know that. I honestly didn't know that. It got lonely inside this world I was living in. I could stay sober three or four days maybe and then I would drink again for a couple hours and I got scared. I got scared that this is not right. Something's wrong. I don't have no defense. I got nothing. See, I ran out of aces quick. I didn't know there was treatment centers and detox units and jitter joints and puzzle shops. I, I didn't know I could go to any of them places. I had no idea. I had something that nobody else knew about. I had a pain that was all mine and I couldn't handle it. And if I couldn't handle it, nobody could handle it. I didn't know. Just didn't know. I got afraid it was going to be like this forever. Forever is a long time. And I tell you honestly, I didn't mind dying. I, I didn't, hell, I don't, none of them that scared me. It was living. It was living like this forever. I might live to be 60 or 70 or 80 years old and I didn't want that kind of pain forever. Not fair forever. Not fair. And whatever the bottle told me to do, I did and that's how simple it was. The fear started to set in, the fear greater, fear to walk out the door. I'd sit on the side of my bed at six o'clock in the morning as the sun was rising and I would rock. I would rock. If anybody's ever been in lockup and you see them, you leave them alone. And I would sit on my bed and I would rock. I didn't want the sun to come up. I didn't know if I was going to drink or not, but I didn't want to take a chance. I didn't want to go through this no more. I would leave all my money at home. I would, I would take two bits. For two bits, you get two cups of coffee and make a phone call. And if I only had two bits, I couldn't go out at lunch and drink. I would walk to work so that I, so that I couldn't get in the car and go out at lunch. No, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Lunch is at 11.30. I'm drinking at 11. Somehow, some way, I got whiskey and, and drink inside the workplace. And I believe this, that as an alcoholic, I can find a drink in the middle of the Mojave Desert. I know that. I've proven that. I've drank at the most inopportune times at the most places you just shouldn't be able to drink. I don't want to drink no more. And I can't help what's happening to me. Tears started coming down my eyes. You know, it was one of those things, there's two kinds of drunk nobody likes. Nobody likes a fighting drunk or a weeping drunk. And I spent my whole life being a fighting drunk, and now I'm a weeping drunk. I stand at the bar, and tears are coming down, and blubber coming out of my mouth, and I'm drunk. I'm drunk. Self-pity is the most disgusting condition I've ever been in. And I wallowed in that. I couldn't help what was happening to me. I couldn't tell anybody. Don't you understand? I can't stop drinking if nobody loves me. My mom's dying. I couldn't help what was happening to me. And then I would sober up and look at what I did and I would be humiliated. Humiliated that I would do that. And I'll never do that again. And, I, and after three, four days of sick and throwing up and shakes and sweats and the drop, I'd go back and do it again. Powerless over alcohol and my life was unmanageable and I couldn't help what was happening to me. And I lost the biggest thing I could lose for me. And that's my hope.
Because, yeah, I never had a lot going for me. I never had a lot of good looks, a lot of money, a lot of talent, a lot of skill, but I had a lot of hope. I was overloaded with hope. It was my strong suit. I, when I was a, just a, a 13 or 12, I would gather up to eight, nine-year-olds and would challenge the 14-year-olds in football. Come on! Come on! We can do it! Full of hope, just loaded with hope. I remember when I was 21, I walked into Wishing Well up on 79th and Broadway. Guy stopped me at the door, Joe Pollock. He's sober today. He said, Mel, you don't go back there. There's 50 guys back there going to beat the pants off of you. Man, I threw my coat off and I flew back there. <laughs> And they did. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> but I had hope. I had hope. Come on with it. Come on with it. And no brains. And have no brains. Just a lot of hope. Now I'm 24 years old and I am hopeless. I'm 24 years old and I see no light at the end of the tunnel. I'm 24 years old and I see no way this is ever going to get better and I weep. I weep. I can't stop drinking. I stood before a judge in April of May in 1970, pounded on that thing. He said, I find you guilty of shooting with intent to kill an officer law and I sent you to one of 20 years. And I'm telling you, when they put the cuffs on me and was dragging me out of that courtroom, I thought just maybe I can stay sober in a joint. Just maybe. I'll tell you, by the time I got to that judge, there was nothing he could do to hurt me. There was no new pain he could inflict upon me. There was no suffering that he could make me go through that alcoholism and my own selfishness hadn't already inflicted upon me. What could he do to me? Would he take away my freedom? Hell, I sold it for a drink. I was held captive inside a bottle of whiskey and I couldn't get out. What could he deny me? My love. Selfish people don't love, they use. And I could use in a joint just like I could use out here. Maybe, just maybe, I could stay sober in there. What could you, what could you members of society do to me? Would you take away this precious gift of peace of mind that Alcoholics Anonymous has given us? I'm one who believes that the alcoholic in the chronic and progressed stages of alcoholism knows no peace. The best he can hope for is to drink to oblivion. Drink till he can't care. Drink till he can't think. Drink till he can't feel. That's the best. You can't do that to me. I've hurt too much already. And I say anybody with a soul should never be in that condition. They put me in that cell and they locked me up and I did the same thing in that cell that I always did in that cell. I sobered up. Didn't cost 18 grand either. (laughs) I sobered up and I looked around and I said this to myself. I'm worth more than this. I am worth more than this. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. You know, I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous a hundred times. Uh, A page. I couldn't grasp uh, nothing. But there was a saving passage in that book 
the first time I read it, and I, <laughs> and, and I tell you, it just leaped out at me from the pages, and the passage is this. There are those who make the supreme sacrifice rather than fight again. And I tell you, that day in that cell, with all the hopelessness, with all the despair, with all the self-pity that one drunk can have, I gotta do something. I'm not gonna suffer like this forever. Now you go out to Mayfield Village and they got a jail no bigger than this, uh, than this table right here. And about six or eight years ago they had a kid in there, I a high school kid, simple DWI. Uh, he sat in that cell and he sobered up and I believe he understood my shame. I believe he understood self-pity as I understood it. I believe he understood guilt and remorse and humiliation as I understood it in that cell. And, and, and he couldn't take it. Rather than fight again, when a depp walked by, he snatched a pistol and he ate it. 17 years old. No trap, no murder, no, not, just drank. And didn't want to pay the prices of his drinking. And that day, in that cell, I'd had enough. That day in that cell, I did something that was more against, more against my nature than suicide, more against my will than taking my own life, and that something was surrender. Surrender. Total surrender. You see, I was good for surrenders. I know no trouble with surrenders. I'd hang my head and I'd kick my feet and I'd say, I'm sorry, Your Honor. And if you give me 500 bucks, my, I promise I won't do it no more. And, if, and I pro- I'll, I'll apologize to your daughter for punching her teeth out and I'll pay for all the damages. And just don't press charges. No, and, and as far as I'm concerned, those are all surrenders for a guy with my pride. And that's not the kind of surrender I'm talking about. I'm talking about a total surrender. You know what I mean? About five or six squad cars took me to an abandoned building up on Jones and Broadway. As I was walking in the door, they took the cuffs off and hit me in the back of the head with a shotgun button. When I went down on the floor, they took a little circle and they started hitting me. And they kept hitting me and they kept beating me and they spread my arms out and they beat my hands so I couldn't make a fist and they just kept on and they kept on. And they hit me with saps and jacks and stuff I'd never been hit with before. And I just kind of curled up there and I just kind of curled up there and it just seemed like they kept going on and on and on. You know, it dawned on me that they'd finally had enough. You know, they just had had enough of me. And they were going to beat me to death in this abandoned building and leave me and let the rats eat my body and nobody would ever know the difference. And I tell you, I got a fear inside my guts. I tell you, that something come out of me that I'd never, I'd never heard before or since. And it was a scream. A scream come out of me that I, I, I just didn't sound human. I didn't want to die that way. And they stopped. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the kind of surrender I'm talking about. Do you understand that? That's the kind of surrender I've made all my life. Because as soon as they stopped, you know, I tried to get back up on my knees and up onto my hands and it dawned on me, hell, that was easy. I should have screamed that 20 minutes ago. <laughs> That's a surrender. And when I get out of here, I'm going to get every one of them. And it was like my head was made out of glass. You know, they just read that thought. And as soon as I got up onto my knees, one of them drop kicked me right in the chest and they started all over again. And they kept on, and they kept on, and they kept on. And I started to beg, and I started to cry, and I started to please, 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 don't kill me. 
Please, just don't kill me. Total surrender. Please, don't do this to me. And that day in that cell, the surrender was total. Please. Please, just somebody help me. I'll do anything you say. Just please help me. I'm ready. I've had enough. Help me. And it's unfortunate that by the time a guy like me gets to a place like that, there's there's no help. There's no more probation, no more counselors, no more therapists, no more nothing, no more nothing. Hey, that's it. I'm done. I burned them up. I used them out. I already told you that. And by the very nature of the disease that I have, without help at that moment, and that is just a moment of total surrender, I was to lapse into a greater state of despair, a greater depth of alcoholics. Alcoholism, a greater depth of hopelessness, because there was nobody there. Nobody but one, and that one is God. And it's just that simple. It's just that simple. In that moment of total surrender, when I was ready to do anything, anything. And the surrender's not out here, don't you know? You can't see the surrender. You have no idea what's going on outside. Inside, all you see is what you see. Only God can see on the inside. Only He knew. Only He knew. And it had to be that way. And when the surrender was total and I was ready for help, the teacher appeared. And he appeared just like this. Two guys in the next bunk talking about a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Just like that. Now, I'd been in that county jail for months at a time. At a dozen different occasions. And at this time, in that cell, in that block, on that range, on that floor, at that moment, guy talking about a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, and he wasn't talking to me. You, you couldn't. You, you couldn't talk to me. He was talking to another guy who was going down for his first number and he's telling this new guy, he said, man, you ever been busted for DWR, drunk and disorderly, or public intox, trying a program called Alcoholics Anonymous and I was close enough to hear him. Alcoholics Anonymous. See, Bill Wilson talks about the moment of total surrender. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, he says he was lifted out of his room and put on top of a mountain. And the wind and truth, the spirit of freedom or something was blown by him. He calls it a spiritual experience. And I'm here today to tell you that day in that cell in that moment of total surrender, I had a spiritual experience. Alcoholics Anonymous caressed my mind for the first time in my life and I bought it. I bought it. I think it's only fair, it's only fair to tell you that. Oh, I sat in a lot of cells, listening to a lot of places, listening to a lot of people tell a lot of stories, and I learned all kinds of good stuff. I learned how to punch safes and hot wire cars and beat burglar alarms, and one day at dawn, I mean, these guys are telling me how to pull a score, and they're sitting in the cell with me. (laughs) (laughs) You somehow don't believe guys like that. So what I'm trying to say to you is this, is that day in that cell in 1970, in that moment of total surrender, God gave me grace. He gave me grace to recognize truth. And the truth is Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the truth. 
You see, I couldn't recognize truth. I had lost the ability to recognize. I lived a lie too long. I lost the ability to recognize truth. That day in that cell, God gave me grace to recognize truth. I had no reason to believe that guy. He was a loser. I didn't believe in losers. Hey, I didn't pay no attention to them. Here's what would happen. They would lie. I would listen. Then I would lie. They would listen. We'd go lay down for a while, come back and lie again to each other. That's how, we, that's how I live my life in lockup. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. That day I believed him and I had no reason to believe him because he was a loser. He'd been in AA, went out and got drunk, shot a guy to death in the phone booth on, on 40, 49th and uh, on the west of 49th Street and he was facing murder one, the electric chair. The electric chair. And God gave me grace to recognize truth. Truth stands alone, needs no support, needs no backup. Gold is gold, you know. If it's in the garbage can of Fort Knox, it's still gold. You can't change that. Truth is truth. If it comes from the mouth of a liar or an honest man, truth is still truth. It stands alone and unsupported. And God gave me the grace to recognize truth, and he gave me that grace in advance. I did not earn my way into Alcoholics Anonymous. Not with one good deed, not with one kind act. I didn't help no old ladies across the street. I didn't take no dogs home. I didn't help nobody out of a burning bill. I didn't do nothing for nobody. God gave me the grace in advance. And I'll tell you this. This is just kind of the way I look at it. I believe he'd been at the door of my heart knocking all my life. He always wanted to come in. I just wouldn't let him. I didn't need him and I didn't need you. And until I needed him and you, I wasn't going to let you in and it's that simple. You got that now. Now I got the message. Now I got the message and the ball is in my corners, you see. The ball is in my corner. I get down to the joint. I get down to the joint, and I shoot them a kite. I sent them a letter, a letter they call kite. And I said, I want to join Alcoholics Anonymous. And they sent me one back and said, not you. (laughs) Not you. Where would you be tonight if when you called for help, they said, not you. (laughs) Not you. He said, you ain't been here long enough. I was still in quarantine. I see if I had any communicable diseases. They kept me in there for a month. And, and after a month, I sent him another kite. Another letter. I said, I want to join Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I've already told you I'm a three-inning ball player. Remember that. If it gets tough, I'll do something else. If AA don't want me, I'll join BB. <laughs> Big Brothers. And if BB don't want me, I'll join CC. Cons for Christ. We had no alphabet in lockup, man. I had no trouble with that. So when I'm telling you about a power, I'm telling you about a power that, that gives me the grace and the grace is sufficient to see me through all things. I have a desire and I have a willingness. My whole life has been lack of power. Now I got a power. Now I got a power. Guy said, come in. We'll give you a test to see if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> I did with that test, which what I did with every other test I took. <laughs> I cheated. <laughs> the meeting of my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was afraid. I was afraid. I had no idea what I was doing there. I'd gotten a message that's from the inside, not from the outside, not a threat. And I sat in a meeting and a guy got up and he told a story just like I told you tonight of loneliness and fear, of suffering, of hopelessness and despair. 
The fact that whether he was in jail or out of jail had nothing to do with the message. That's not a drunk's message. The message is on the inside. The things that you didn't know about me that I kept secret. The things that held me captive. The things that wouldn't let me go. Those are the things that I had inside of me. There's a lot of convicts in the joint that I don't drink at all. They're just not nice people. <laughs> and I happen to be a not nice person who had contracted alcoholism. If I could stay sober, I'd still be a not nice person. Drunk or sober. Huh. <laughs> I sat in the meeting and the guy started talking. And he started talking about all of this stuff that I held secret. He started talking about all the fears, afraid of the day, afraid to live, afraid to try again. He talked about all the loneliness and the despair and the hopelessness. He talked about the inability to manage his own life. That's all he talked about. And then I sat in that chair and he shared his experiences on and... <clears throat> His experiences and strengths with me, it was like he opened up my guts and put them on a the table. Nobody ever knew these things. I couldn't tell friends that I had for 20 years what was going on inside of me. I couldn't give that to nobody. This guy's giving it to me for free. He's sharing his experiences and his strengths, and he gave me back my hope. Do you know you can't buy that? Do you know you can't get that anywhere? That's a gift from God, and he gave it through you. He gave me back my hope. I sat in that chair and I just couldn't believe what he was saying to me. I sat in that chair and I, and, and I just, I, 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 I know you won't believe this, but I used to be very excitable. I used to be a very excitable guy. I sat in that chair and I started to get excited. And when the meeting was over, when the meeting was over, I reached over and I grabbed this guy's ashtray and I emptied it. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did something. I did something. And I didn't empty that ashtray because I was fond of the guy who dirtied it. And I didn't empty that ashtray because I detested dirty ashtrays. I emptied that ashtray because I didn't know what else to do to say thanks. I didn't know what else to do to just let you know that I'm glad to be here. And I set up tables and I took down tables and I carried chairs and I carried that big cauldron of coffee all the way from the officer's dining room across the yard and upstairs into where they book you. And that coffee was going like this. And I felt like that kung fu guy when he grabbed that big thing and put them things on it. I was doing something. I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and my ass Action showed that, not my mouth. I'm going to tell you this. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea. I believe that the grace of God held things, opened things, gave things, just allowed me to do it. And I think if there's one thing that God gave me that He gives to every drunk coming in, because I ain't special, and that's the gift of faith. I had no reason to believe you. I had no, no reason. Hell, half of them guys had jobs. 
When I talk to you about faith, <laughs> I don't mean big faith. <laughs> Jimmy Swagger turned the hurricane back faith. I'm not talking like that. I'm talking about little faith, the tiny faith, the childlike faith. You know what I mean? When my little girl was three years old, on her third birthday party, she fell down and she skinned her knee, huh? And she laid out on that sidewalk and she kicked and screamed and cried and you know how women do on and on and on and on. I know the beast within. I know the beast within. I never chained that beast. I maimed and wounded and hurt and suffered people wherever I went. I never chained the beast. You had a countdown. Seventy-two, I was involved in the first prison riot in 50 years. Same sound. Raw emotion. My beast is not polite. And I have to keep that beast chained up. You give me an inch, I'll grab a mile. You know how women are. She kicked and screamed. Till I finally went out there and I picked that little girl up and I kissed her knee and she stopped crying. Faith of a child. She didn't question my credentials. You got Blue Cross, you got a license to practice medicine, got hospitalization. She just knew that all she needed was a touch from her father. Someone who cared and gave her time was all she needed to get better. And when I came to you, that's the faith that God gave me back as a child. And I didn't give that to whiskey. I gave that to fear. I gave that to people who hurt me when I was tiny and little and growing up and the big things of the world and the stars that don't explain themselves. I gave up all of that faith. And God gave me that special, and you too, that special gift of faith back. And all I needed was a touch from my Father who art in heaven. And I would be all right too. And he gave me you who cared and touched me and held me, who talked to me and took time. Just like we do for our children. We never lose that. God gave me faith to come back to you time after time. And as I come back to you, I listen to what you said. I got confused easily. It stopped. Do you believe that? <laughs> It stopped. <laughs> Mickey Mouse, welcome to California. <laughs> in gold, in gold, Mickey Mouse.
Hey, buckle up. We ain't even got started yet. I would sit in these meetings and I would listen to the things that you said and what you said didn't make no sense. You said the most outrageous things that I've ever heard in my life. If you want to keep it, you got to give it away. Does that make sense to you? That don't make no sense to me. If I got two bucks and I want to keep it, give it to somebody. That doesn't make no sense to me. But that's alcoholic arithmetic. That's how we add in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just that simple. I didn't understand it. They said stuff to me that I didn't understand. I'll tell you one of the first things that they said to me that was like a big spotlight coming on in my brain. If you want to get rid of the garbage, take an inventory. That just, that, yeah. Yeah, the guy had somehow we must have changed meeting halls. Uh, meeting halls. We must have changed rooms and we were somewhere there was a, a chalkboard and he had chalk and he says, here's what you got to do to get rid of the garbage. Put a line across the top, a line through the middle, put the good parts over here, the good things you did over here and the bad things you did over here. And that just all of a sudden made sense to me. I'm going to do that. And I got a copy of the big book. <laughs> they didn't sell them. And they didn't, library didn't have them. <laughs> And nobody gave me one. How did I do that? I stole that. Stole it. I'm a thief. What are thieves supposed to do? I stole it. I tell you this. <laughs> Alcoholics are cagey customers. They read me like yesterday's newspaper. The guy brought the book in. He put it down and went over to shake some hands. You got that? <laughs> if he's going to give it to me, it couldn't be worth much. <laughs> I got out and went back to the penitentiaries with the very same people that come down to visit me. And you know what? They bring the book down and they put it down and walk away. They know you're going to steal the book. That's why they don't give it to you. They read me like a funny section. They knew I was going to do it. And I thought I was hip looking cool. So if you haven't got a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, get a job. Get a job. Clean Ansel's horse. <laughs> but I got the book. And I got the formula. Draw a line across and I went back to my rack and I lay down and I drew the lines, the good parts here and the bad parts there. And I got the book and I sat down and I started to think. And I tell you something, I had a lot of time. A lot of time to think. Time is not a problem. And I couldn't come up with one good, decent thing I'd done for another human being in my life. <laughs> But that was okay, because I couldn't come up with nothing bad I did to anybody didn't deserve it. <laughs> I'm trying to take a fourth step, and I ain't taken one, two, and three yet. Can you imagine that? And that fourth step don't say get rid of garbage. It says searching in fearless moral inventory of myself. And I already told you I was a runner and a hider and a liar. How could I possibly be searching and fearless about something I had no knowledge of? My morals. Before 
I could ever do something that dangerous, I needed help. Help. I needed some pals. I needed some partners. I needed some power. I had to find some help in step two. I got on good terms with that help in step three. And like gangbusters, we can jump into four. But without that power and that help and my will and that power together, I might find something that'll just knock me out of the box. And I ain't ready to look. I'd rather blame you. So before I could ever work step four, I did one, two, and three. And I might add this to Big Book Don't Say Nothing at All about the good parts here and the bad parts there. That's 18 grand a year. Does uh, 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 18 grand a month. The Big Book says this is what we do. And it took me years to work those steps. Years. Absolute years. And I'm not telling you you can stay sober on coffee cups and ashtrays, but I am telling you I bought enough time with good works. I bought enough time with coffee cups and ashtrays. I bought enough time with unselfish acts from a selfish human being till I could work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and apply them in my life. I did two years in that penitentiary. And if I did nothing else in those two years, I did these two things. One, I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. And that my life was unmanageable. And as far as I was concerned, it was a so what question. So what? Hell, I knew that before I got here. And the second thing I did was I came to believe in a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. If I did nothing else, I did those two things. And I think it's only fair I tell you how I work step two. How step two came into my life. It's not accidental. None of these steps are accidental. They're all intentional with purposes. I went to the parole board. <laughs> they told me, as I sat in the board, that I was a detriment to the decent people of society and that they had no alternative but to give me five years. I said, you got anything to say for yourself? Huh? The big shot, big time speaker from Cleveland, Ohio. Huh? With my glib tongue and my old, my all almighty way said, <clears throat> I'm in AA now. That's it. You know what they said? There's a little button on the side. Two gorillas walk in. They pressed that button and said, get him out of here. Get him out of here. And I went back to my rack and I lay down on my rack. And I'd reached a point where I could do nothing more than what I'd already done. And I followed directions you'd been hammering into my mind for the past 11 months. I said a prayer, my first prayer in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the prayer was the one that's so simple, it's so common, it's almost blasé to do it anymore. Let's say the prayer instead of pray the prayer. Here it is. God grant me the serenity to do every day this five years, but God, I don't want to drink no more. See, I reached a crossroads that it talked about, what am I in Alcoholics Anonymous for? If I'm in AA for the parole board, I'm drunk. If I'm in AA for any other reason but sobriety, I'm drunk. And I reached that point where I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous for sobriety. And I knew then I was in for sobriety. I didn't want nothing else out of Alcoholics Anonymous but sobriety. I do every day this five years, God, but I don't want to drink no more. I don't want to drink no more. God answers prayers and he answered that prayer for me. And how he answered is a, is a kind of a long story. Don't mean nothing. But the fact, no, mean nothing to you. 
But I come to believe that there's a power greater than myself because he answered that prayer. He answered that prayer in a miraculous way. If I could have said that it happened because I bought this guy, paid that guy, threatened his family, intimidated his kids, if there was some way I could take the credit for what happened that day, I would. But it was miraculous, and only God can do those kinds of things, and he did it. And I sat and I pondered the action. I pondered the action for a whole nother year. I already told you, he gave me a nickel, right? A whole nother year. And, 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 and... Let me put it this way. Everybody likes stories. Everybody likes stories. When he was a little kid, you used to hear these Bible stories. You know these little stories that tell you the story. Goody your neighbor and Aunt Alice, all these little stories. One of the stories that I always liked to listen to but never believed was this one. Is that they had one of, one of the apostles or disciples or one of them guys in lockup. <laughs> and they had him chained down. His whole body covered with chains. They had a hack on the left and a hack on the right and another hack at the door. It's just true. I read it in a book. Or they told it to me long before I read it in a book. And, and, and the angel come down and he says this. Hey, he said, get out of here. The apostle said, what do you mean get out? Can't you see what the condition I'm in here? He said, you got a job to do and a message to carry. Get out of here. And the chains fell off. And when he got up, the hacks didn't wake up. They was asleep. And he got to the door, and the door opened up, and that hack was asleep. And he went on to carry a message, because he had a job to do. In 1972, the parole board said I owed him four more years. And the chains fell off, and the hacks didn't wake up, and the door opened up, and I walked out. And it's just that simple. It's just that simple. I don't expect you to believe that story, because I didn't believe it when I read it in a book. And it's just as true then as it is now. I had a job to do and a message to carry. You want to know why I'm in California? Because God gave me a message. He said, take this message to California. I said, whoa, I'd rather go to Parma. It's a suburb right next door. I want to go to California. I don't go to California. He said, you're not listening. Take this message to California. And that's what I got for you, is the message. I am just a messenger. I'm like Western Union. I am not the message. You give me the message, I carry it to you. I can take nothing but that. Here I am, the messenger. And the message is this. Love your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your might and your neighbor is yourself. And it's just that simple. See, I know how to stay sober. And I know what I need to stay sober. And I need three things to stay sober. I need you. I, I have to have you. I, I couldn't stay sober till I met you. You know that. If I could have, I wouldn't shake your hand. I couldn't stay sober till I met you. I need the power of God in my life to give me the power to, to beat the bottle. I, I don't have the power. And neither do you. And neither do you. Only God can give us that power. And I need a 12-step program of action incorporated into my life. I need those three things. You see, I don't need a car to stay sober. Hell, I went years without a car and stayed sober. I don't need a vacation to stay sober. I went really years without vacations uh, in, in, in and out AA. <laughs> I don't even need colored clothes. To stay sober. They gave me whites in the joint and I wore whites for years. And I stayed sober. I don't need sex to stay sober. I've stayed sober years without sex. I need you. 
And I need a 12-step program of action incorporated into my life, and I need the power of God. That's all I need to stay sober. And anything else comes down the pike is a gift to me. It's a bonus. It's an extra. I don't need much. I just don't need much. And if that statement's true, huh? If it's true, you got to back it up with something. That means if that statement's true and I need you to stay sober, then the absolute worst thing I could do is to get mad at you. To be resentful about you. To gossip about you. To tear you apart and to criticize you. That's the absolute worst thing I could do. I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. If I need you, I'm going to be nice to you. Real nice to you. Because <laughs> I don't want to drink no more. I just don't want to drink no more. I did two years in that penitentiary, and I'm telling you that they gave me my clothes in the county jail and said, you can go. You can go. And I just sent a letter back to the joint. Don't sell my stuff. I'll be back. It's got to be a mistake. They got like the wrong number, the wrong guy, and they gave me my clothes and said, you could go. And I'm thinking to myself, it's got to be something. Something's got to be up. You see, I was accustomed to the justice system. I lived inside the justice system most all my life. Now I'm part of the mercy system, and I don't understand it at all. It's confusing. And they gave me my clothes, and I'm thinking to myself, it's a trap. They ain't forgot what I've done to them, and now that they got me back in Cleveland, they're going to get even. And I put my coat on, and I pulled my hat down, and I knew that as soon as I hit the door, two big hats was going to pick me up and drag me back in and laugh. Try to break me. But if you can break the spirit, you broke the man. And they wanted the spirit gone. I believed that in my mind. I'll tell you about fear. Nothing to do with drinking. Nothing to do with drinking. So for two years, I was afraid to walk out of the county jail. I jumped in the car and ran through the alleys and down through the 55th and got up to Broadway and went up into my house. And I ran in the house and I slammed the door and the lock and the deadbolt and I sat down in the chair and I waited. And I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid to walk out the door. Afraid that something's going to happen. Afraid they're going to come and get me. And I sat there. And I sat there for hours. There's no way I could stay sober. I couldn't stay sober living like this. Uh, it finally got so dark and nobody told me what to do. Go to bed, wake up, smoke a cigarette, chow. Nobody said nothing. At 2.30 or 3 o'clock, I finally snuck out the door and went down in the valley and I sat in a restaurant with my back against the wall and I ate a meal with a spoon because I forgot how to use a knife and a fork. And I went home and I woke up and, it, and about 10 o'clock in the morning, the doctor at the door and I'm telling you it was like a, a relief. Finally, it's over with. Finally, I don't have to go through this living in fear and constant agony and I threw the door open. And you guys were there. What I owe you? What I owe you for that, for that help, for that, for that freedom? What I owe you for care and what I owe you? A couple of meetings, a couple of prayers. Help a couple of drunks. Tell me what I owe you. What can I pay you back? The fact of the matter is this, is I'm in hock up to here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been on a take for almost 20 years. (laughs) 
there's no way I can pay you back. You see, I was the guy that was going to get even with God, huh? I was the guy that was going to do it. When I realized what the score was and who was doing the cooking, I went and got busy. I'm going to pay God back and I don't want to owe him nothing. I don't want to owe nobody nothing. That's pride, huh? Big pride. So I started going to meetings, a lot of meetings, six, eight, ten meetings, started sponsoring. Huh. Six, eight, ten, twelve guys at a time. Hell, I bought one of them yellow school buses they used to haul the handy, the mentally handicapped in, and I thought that was appropriate, and I'd fill it up with these drunks, and we'd go down to the penitentiary, and down to the Iron Farms, and down to Stella Maris, and down to my own group, and we'd do all of this stuff because I want to get even with God. I don't want to own nothing. You know the funny thing about my God? I can never outdo His grace. Anything I've ever put in Alcoholics Anonymous, God's given me back. And He never gives me one for one. Sears and Robux will give me that deal. He don't even give me a hundred for one. Everything I've ever done in Alcoholics Anonymous, every kind word, every prayer, every lead, everything I've ever done, God's given me back a thousand times. You know what that means? The more I do, the more I get, the more I get, the deeper in debt I get. <laughs> I quit trying to get even, I just make payments. <laughs> I just make payments from day to time. And it's just that simple. Okay, uh, according to my stopped watch, <laughs> I'll tell you a story that I have to tell you. I have to tell you. I must have been about 19 years old, I don't know, 20, maybe, I don't know, hot daddy. I was a hot daddy. And I was sitting in one of these restaurants in my neighborhood and I had one of them mouths. You know one of them mouths? And the guy walked up to me and he said, hey, he said, I got my wife over here, buddy. I said, hey. I took care of him in no time at all. No time at all. And I no sooner got done knocking him out and his wife jumped on me. And I had to put her away too. And then the manager come over. And I'm done. I said, I gotta get out of this joint. See, and I'm backing my way out and I'm knocking him down. And it's, it's getting, I got out to the parking lot. The dishwasher was out in the parking lot waiting for me. I learned a lesson. Not then. <laughs> but as I look back, <laughs> they were trying to teach me a lesson. That if I use that filth around decent people, I better get ready to use my hands. Because decent people ain't going to stand for it. And you are the most decent people I've ever met in my life. And I wouldn't never ever want to hurt you. I don't want to use my hands. I don't use that mouth. There was a little girl that went to Europe, and while she was in Europe, she visited all the cathedrals. And she asked the people, the guide, who the people were on the stained glass windows of those cathedrals. And the guy told her that those was the saints. And when she got home and everybody asked that little girl what she had seen while she was in Europe, she says, I have seen the saints. And when they asked her who the saints were in her innocence, that little girl said, why, the saints are the ones that let the light in. And I say this to you tonight in my innocence. And man, I got it. You people in this room, in Alcoholics Anonymous, throughout, and particularly at the Newberg Group, let the light in for me. All that I have 
and all that I am and all that I ever hope to be, I got from you people 19 years and 10 months ago today. Thank you for loving me and God bless you. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did. All those years when I was uh, traveling as much as I was on the road, and uh, I still enjoy it. Uh, Milt really knows how to deliver a message. And I talked about this on the beginning of the episode, but if you do have, if you're listening out there uh, and you're from the Cleveland area and you know how to get in touch with Milt, uh, I sure would like to get in touch with him. So just let me know. It's very interesting. What people don't realize about what I do, people will tell me all the time, hey, you need to get so-and-so on your podcast, but we, we are anonymous. It's not like you can just go look up a list of AA speakers or Al-Anon speakers or whatever the case may be and, and get their emails. It's not like there's not a big list online. And so uh, uh, just everything I do is through referral. It's about uh, knowing people and being in and around the program for uh, so long. So uh, that was it. So anyway, thank you, Mel. Uh, if that episode impacted you. Remember now, we don't want you sharing your gossip, but we would love for you to take time to pause your device and share this episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. And I talked about this last week, but part of what I love about this podcast is that um, we all are a community, not only in AA or Al-Anon as a whole, but there is a Sober Speak community. And I love to hear the stories. Um, I love to hear, uh, I, I, um, just write me at john, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Maybe there's a sponsor you want to tell me about, a counselor, a loved one who hung in there with you when nobody else would. Um, perhaps you want to tell me about the despair that you're going through because we hear that in meetings all the time. Um, perhaps a tough amends that you never thought was possible that you'd be ever that you would be able to uh, make. Uh, whatever it is, send me a note j o h n at, at soberspeak.com. I'll try my best to get it on read on the pod. All right. Listener feedback. Jeremy writes in and he says, Hey, John, I was introduced uh, to Sober Speak this past weekend as I traveled west to Asheville, North Carolina, from Greenville, where I reside, to visit two of my children. Yes, a meeting between meetings, but also I wanted to listen to other perspectives, especially that which I found through Lori, Lori G and her Al-Anon share. We do not bring politics into our discipline, though I must say that in order to understand why people think the way that they do, it is necessary to listen to their perspectives. Otherwise, it is just contempt 
prior to investigation. I am on this planet. I was saved to pay it forward to both the alcoholic and to all who are affected. You had shared in this particular podcast that you'd received a letter from a prison inmate. This I loved as I too take the message to prisons. This is also why my God has me back in the middle uh, and uh, high school classrooms, and I'm able to share my perspectives through my writing. Lori sure allowed me to empathize and identify, and it also confirmed for me some beliefs I still have toward my own ex-wife's selfishness. Lori, Lori's story though was different, where she was raised as, as where she was raised as selfish. Sophie had to become selfish due to the protection she learned in Al-Anon to protect her and to protect my three boys. Lori's living in a two-story house was cute, but also resonated through the healing powers of AA I have come to terms with through the truth. For there is only one, the truth I was able to admit to Sophie during my ninth step. My recovery was arduous. Uh, I was around AA from 2001 when both Lori and Cliff G got sober to 2010. As we know, everything worsened. All of the yets came to fruition from job loss to homelessness. I wasn't, it wasn't until I realized what we call the sincerest of all gifts, the gift of desperation, um, as delivered through my voice, you don't have to do this anymore, that I was truly able to surrender. Thank you for your time, John. And here is my website. Uh, And uh, he gave me his website. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Jeremy, go to Jeremy P stevens.com that's uh stevens with a v that's jeremy j-e-r-e-m-y p as in paul stevens s-t-e-v-e-n-s.com and he's got some information out there that is enlightening i actually enjoyed going through it myself thanks for writing in jeremy lisa writes in and she says hi john could you add me to the secret Facebook group. Thank you so much, John. Well, Lisa, of course we can. She says, I'm an Al-Anon, but coming to terms with my drinking, excuse me, folks, and have been sober for 17 days. God bless you, Lisa. I went to an AA meeting last week, but have yet to admit my alcoholism. I'll get there, but wanted you to know how much listening to your podcast has guided me to recognizing myself in your guests and their stories. God bless you and keep up the keep keep up the great work you're doing, Lisa. Well, Lisa, God bless you once again. Congrats on the 17 days. Keep us posted. That's always interesting when Al-Anon's come in through the back door, so to speak. Or is that what you call it? Through the side door? I don't know. Through some other door, but through the front door, right? 
Will writes in, and Will says, hey, John. Hey, Will. He says, I just wanted to reach out and thank you for starting this podcast. I had to do my ninth step amends to the judge and apologize for my actions. I was sentenced to three months in county jail here in Maryland. I didn't know this, but there are tablets in jail and your podcast is on it. These podcasts sure made my sobriety stronger and my spirituality grow even more. I thought it was crazy to see my great grand sponsor, Charlie P was on there along with a lot of my sponsors, AA friends. My favorite podcast has to be Rich B from Ocean City. I wanted to ask if you could reach out to him so I could possibly get in contact with him. Thank you again, John. Well, as you know, uh, I did get in touch with Will H, excuse me, with a uh, uh, Rich B there, Will, and uh, uh, hope things go well from there. And thank you for writing in and giving your experience, strength, and hope. And I'm glad you're on the right path. Sandy writes in, and she says, "Good morning, John. My name is Sandy G." Oh gosh. Okay, so what's going on in my head is that song, Look at me, I'm Sandy D. Wait a sec, no, that's Sandra D. But anyway, so this is Sandy G, but you know, my head goes a little in kind of weird places sometimes. Good morning, John M. My name is Sandy G, and I have been in AA since 1985. Wow, Sandy, that is fantastic. She says, I came from an alcoholic family. I started my first trip to blackout drinking at six years old. My goodness. I completed that journey when I was 41. I have a loving God and I love being the daughter to the highest king. He walks with me 24-7. Good for you, Sandy. I am of service to him and others. I love sobriety. I found you on Amazon. Have a blessed day, Sandy. Well, Sandy G., uh, you have a blessed day as well. I'm wondering, like, I hear people find me on Amazon. I got to go figure it out. I think it's on the Amazon podcast thing, but I'm not sure. I mean, Amazon's big. Like, uh, I wonder if I'm getting an ad during Thursday night football <laughs> on Amazon Prime Time. I wish. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Uh, but anyway, thank you for uh, writing in, Sandy. I appreciate ya. Renee writes in, and uh, the subject line is Super Secret Facebook Group. By the way, if you're not in the Super Secret Facebook Group, uh, go to Facebook, the application, search up. You don't have to put the secret part in there. Uh, Actually, no, no, you don't have to put the super part in there. Look up uh, Sober Speak Secret group and we will get you on in ask for admission into the group please and uh, anyway she says uh, my name is renee i'm just gonna say p here there's a couple of different names and i'm not sure which one may or may not be her last name and she says oh and that's my facebook name Uh, and anyway thank you for your service to alcoholics anonymous i'm grateful that you made this podcast i get to listen to your show every day while I'm at work. I work two jobs uh, all week and I'm not able to make meetings. So your podcast is 
Much appreciated. My sobriety date, says Renee, is for one, uh, April 1st, oh, April Fool's Day, of 2016, and I'm absolutely grateful for AA to connect me to a higher power and a new way of living. I fall, uh, although I fall short, I am not the same person I was seven years ago. Have a beautiful evening, and then some prayer hands and a big heart. Blue heart. I like that blue heart. That's pretty cool. Anyway, well, thank you for writing in, Renee. I appreciate ya, and uh, I'm glad that we here at Sober Speak are able to be a, a small part of your journey, uh, and I'm glad that you take your time out of your schedule to listen to us and during your two jobs. You sounds like you're a hard-working woman there, Renee. All right, everybody, that's it. It's a wrap. Um, as I always say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. I am here uno semana, one week at a time. I may be back next week. I may not be back next week. But if I did not come back next week, all would be well and you guys would go on with your life. And I'm so glad and happy that I have met with you. I'm not I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry. I'm not planning like offing myself or anything like that. But you know, sometimes life takes us in weird directions. You never know, right? So uh, try to stay in the now like I'm trying right now. Maybe you trying to stay in the now will help me try to stay in the now. And uh until then, um, oh, what's the other thing I like to say? It's in the big book, page 164. Uh, may God bless you and keep you until then. Thanks for tuning in this week. Love you guys.